Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. For years, Dr. Gail Christopher has been championing an idea that place matters in health outcomes. She's found that the way people live in some communities and neighborhoods puts them at much higher risk for disease. So coming up on today's show, we will sit down to talk with her about her ideas for a healthier America. It was part of our Health Equity and Access Reporting Project. It's a partnership with the Connecticut Health Foundation. We recorded this conversation in front of a live audience at the Chase Family Studio at CPBN. Christopher is Senior Advisor and Vice President at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where she leads the Foundation's Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Enterprise. There she does work trying to end the racial disparities in health outcomes for all Americans. How did you get into this? How did you, how did you first start doing this work? Well, the, this work is the operative phrase there, and uh, it's really been my life's work. I would start with my own personal experiences of what has been termed health disparities, but I like the term health inequities. It's important that we, if we're focusing on equity, we have to realize that those are inequities that we're addressing. And I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I remember my parents had a dear friend, a couple, and they had one child, and she married a, a military man and went off to Texas. And I remember the call coming late at night saying that both the mother and the child had died in childbirth. And that was sort of shocking. And then I watched that friendship unravel, and I watched their lives unravel, and it was it just had an impression. And then I had a, a very dear friend who was one of maybe seven children, and I remembered because the father's name was Robert, and all the girls were named after him, Bobby, Roberta, you know that sort of thing. And then the mother was going into the hospital to give birth, and I remember, you know, hearing the call that that mother had died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward in my own life, I get married, and we have our first child. We lost her when she was three months old. And so the experience of what we call infant mortality, right, became really real for me. And I think it, it, it jettisoned me into a search for why and how could we do something about it. And when you look at this why and how, you, you go pretty far back. And it's one of the reasons I was really interested to talk to you today because when I've had these conversations, often on the radio and often with people who are working very hard on public policy right now, we are talking about right now problems with right now solutions, and we're maybe tracing things back a little time, maybe to the previous budget cycle. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but, but you look at it slightly differently. Can you tell me about what you're tracing here when you trace the roots of, of the problems you're talking about? There is a book that was published, I believe, in 2014, and it's called Sick from Freedom. And it is the first actual documented chronicle of what happened to people when they were freed uh, from the experience of enslavement, you know, centuries of enslavement. It's the first time someone took the time to review the papers at the Freedmen's Bureau to see what was the health, what were the health resources, what actually happened 
There's another comparable book called Medical Apartheid. But this one is the first one that really takes us back, you know, to the emancipation period. And it's just shocking to see the deaths, the cruelty, the absence of care. I think it's important to pull the thread in our country to see how we built all of our systems, in particular our health care and our public health systems, and see how all of those systems embody what I believe to be the foundational belief of not only our health system, but also our country. And that foundational belief is in a hierarchy of human value. It is a taxonomy of the human family, like we still live with all these other taxonomies in nature. Researchers back in the, in the 1800s created a false taxonomy of the human family in which they placed certain people with certain physical characteristics, like yourself, at the top of that taxonomy. And then based on physical characteristics, they became a lowest rung of that taxonomy. And that was ascribed to Africans and people of color. But it affected Asian American or Asian people at the time, uh, indigenous, Indian, you know, Native American, etc. It was kind of this color scale, right? White, red, brown, yellow, black. When you hear it, you think that's crazy. But that's actually what we built our country on. And it's what we've lived with as a country. So when we look at inequities, whether they're in housing or transportation or health or, most importantly, the economy, we're really seeing, I believe, the continued outpicturing of that foundational false ideology of a hierarchy of human value. And I think what's interesting, what you just said, is the ors. The, it's not health or economy. It really is all of those things, and, and they're all drawn together. The health equity that we're talking to, about today, it comes really directly from all sorts of other policies, all sorts of other ideas, but it really is this this notion that we have a hierarchy of, of human beings. Do, do you believe that many of the people who do the work that you do, the people in this room who do this work, Look at it like that? I mean, are we looking far enough back when we're trying to solve these problems? I don't believe we are, and that's why after more than a decade of investing in, in what we call America Healing at the Kellogg Foundation or racial healing, uh, we actually think we've achieved a moment where, and when I say we, I mean the country collectively has reached a moment, and the polling data supports this, where we've moved just enough beyond denial of the reality of racism to where there is an opportunity to step in and provide real leadership for an adaptation of the internationally recognized truth and reconciliation process. For this country, we've never really done that. We, we've had a civil war. We've had a civil rights movement. But if you, if you look at the resistance that each of those encountered, you understand that that foundational belief structure has not moved the foundational idea that some people deserve better than others is still with us. It's not with us consciously as much, although the recent presidential campaign calls that into question, you know, but mostly it's unconscious. We're programmed almost automatically to perceive an other. I know it may not happen as much now, but I would go to a session or a meeting and I'd come back and people would say, so uh, who was there? And then you describe a person and the other person says, well, are they black? Are they white? Are they what? You know, like that 
that's a determining, you know, characteristic. It is. We don't really pay attention to that in the ways that we should because ultimately what we believe and hold dear in our hearts and in our minds, it determines our behaviors and our actions. And so I, I, we call it truth, racial healing, and transformation, not truth and reconciliation. Big difference. Reconciliation implies coming back together. We don't have anything to come back to in America. We were conceived in the notion of hierarchy of human value. That's the part people don't buy into, right? That's the part that's hard to get people to understand. It's not just that it was there and it was terrible and we're trying to get rid of it but that it's the backbone of the whole thing we've got. Well, and that's what's scary, and that's why we use the term transformation, and some people go, okay, so what are we going to transform yeah. to, right? But whether it's the Constitution, the banking system, the health system, the housing system, the transportation system, everything that is us as a country grew out of this idea of some privilege. Now, that goes against our sensibilities because we believe as a country that we earned everything we have and that we stand on our own feet and we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and blah, 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 you know. But it was the context for that sort of self-identity, the broader context for it was the assumed and affirmed and accepted notion of a hierarchy of human value. And it was put in our science. I mean, you remember the whole eugenics movement mm -hmm. was driven by that. It wasn't until the late 20th century that the Human Genome Project actually refuted deeply held beliefs of racial difference. There is more difference within the so-called races than there is between them at, a, at, a, at the level of, the, of genes. But so, you, so think of that. That was the late 20th century. So all of our formative years, we adhered to this other notion. And uh, so it, it's hard work, but I think it's the work of the 21st century. And I say that because most of the children born in America today are children of color. And these children deserve an equal opportunity. And they won't get that if we don't make the structural changes, if we don't reach this collective exhalation point and say as a country, we got to do better. Tell us a story, to, to bring this home if you would, maybe a, a story from a place that you visited, you've done some of your place-based work, so that the folks who are listening understand what you're talking about, about how these hierarchies from centuries ago manifest themselves in a health outcome of, a, say, a, a mother and a child today. You know, the story that, again, stays with me from many years um, when I worked in Chicago in public housing, um, and that's another story itself in terms of why was public housing built, where it was, you know, the way it was, but I was working to bring about uh, economic empowerment for single moms in public housing, and at, that was at the peak of the battles against lead in the bloodstream, and so we had to, we tested. That was when the CDC funded testing, which they don't do as much now, but um, and so there was this young mom who had, I think she had three children, and all of her children tested high in lead content. And I remember she came to me with tears in her eyes, and she said, what am I to do? All of my children are broken. 
Now, if you read the story of the lead wars and what it took and still takes to address our challenge, our public health challenge of lead, not only in leaded paint, but in our drinking water, you know, the dust that's in houses, but and it's in the houses that are the oldest, you know, where most people with the lowest incomes live. There's a researcher in Chicago who has done an amazing correlation study between um, children not reading at grade level in the third grade and the levels of lead in the dust in their houses. Then you have the Flint situation. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a classic illustration of what we call structural racism on so many levels, right? How did that city reach the economic decline that it reached? What happened there in terms of the the movement of resources and dollars and the abandonment or the disinvestment? How did did the state elect a, um, a governance structure that decided that they would take control and take away the democratic rights of the people? And then how did that imposed structure of governance decide to turn its back on the voice of the people when they brought bottles of dirty water into the city council to say this water is not drinkable? And then where did they get permission to falsify, according to the criminal charges that have been made, to falsify the actual records of the lead content in the water? I mean, somewhere in that, there has to be the acknowledgement of a structural and systematic pattern that said these people don't matter. Hmm. What's interesting about the Flint case, and it makes me think of two things, though. You, you have, have studied and worked extensively on the problem of lead in, in houses for years. Mm-hmm. This Flint situation is making us think about lead in an entirely new way, and, and there's a couple different reasons, perhaps. These are my hypothe- hypotheses here. One is that in this case, it's pretty clear that there's some people to blame. And when someone, a a small group of people, make decisions that have a whole city poisoned, we can say they did it, as opposed to the longstanding problem of lead in every single rundown home in a town that is really everyone's problem, right? I mean, is that part of it? Is that we're, we're going to look at this problem because somebody poisoned the water and water is something we should all have. But, but housing, quality housing, you don't really have a right to that. And, and secondarily, who's, who's really to blame? I mean, do you think that there's something to that? I think that's a very good question and it's very well framed. However, I want to point out that what we see in Flint is the tip of the iceberg. And the declining and the destruction of our national infrastructure, particularly our water infrastructure, has been on the alarm for many people in the environmental movement and the EPA. In fact, we did research in Michigan on the lead levels in the schools in Michigan two years before Flint surfaced. And we actually commissioned a report that was released to help schools deal with the lead content in the water. Now, the point is, most of the children who are of low income, most of the children in color, of color, are going to the most dilapidated schools. There, you know, and it could be that someone could decide to build new schools and not have them serviced by leaded pipes. You know, if someone decided that these children deserve that, 
or someone had the, the political will to make that change. So I guess my answer to your question is, and this is why the racial healing and transformation is so important, it has to become an us conversation and not a, a we, they, and a those people. And how we get to that space of, and I, I, people say, what do you mean by racial healing? You know, what, what, when will we know this has happened? We will all care. We will see ourselves in the perceived other. I had a moment last night when they were, I was in the hotel, and I don't watch television usually, but, you know, you're in a hotel, so you, you turn <laughs> it on. And, and they were showing this hospital that was bombed in Syria. Mm-hmm. Now, I have, you know, sort of categorized that situation as not something that I can do something about, right? I've kind of, but when I saw those mothers holding those babies, blood gushing from their heads, I just, something clicked in me that said something has, where is world leadership? This has to stop. You know, and I knew that I would have to do something personally to be involved in bringing this to an end, uh, and and it it's it's those moments where our hearts are touched and our sensibilities are moved to where we feel as individuals we have to take action. We don't know what that action is, but we have to do something because it's not acceptable. And do you think that framing more of these conversations from from a, a health standpoint? might be a way to get at it. I mean, no one wants to see a sick child. No one wants to see someone die. I mean, but one of the problems that we've had is um, war is never seen as a public health crisis. That's a political crisis. Um, I think we know where many people fall in the, in the notion of whether or not um, firearms are a public health crisis. We're not even allowed to study it as a public health crisis. If we frame more of these things truly as this, this is this is health for all of us. This is something we deserve. Is that a way to get to get more people maybe toward that that point that you're looking for? You know, I really appreciate that framing that question, John. When we first started doing the racial equity work at the foundation, I had been hired to lead the health work, and so it was suggested that the racial equity work not be part of the health work. And I really protested, and I said, no, you have to understand racial equity is a life and death issue. It is a health issue foremost, right? Uh, And I think, and this is where my training as a holistic doctor, naturopath, and napropath, and nutritionist, it, it comes in. I recognize the miracle of life, the miracle of the human body. It is actually, if, if you want to talk religion and spirituality, I actually believe if you want to see the divine in play, it's there in the human body. It is a sacred vehicle. So protecting it and supporting it and promoting its optimal function is a sacred charge, I believe, that we all have. And, and that's what health is about, right? And so creating the conditions that enable life and enable people to live healthy lives, it's, fun, it's, in, our, it's in our founding documents. What, to the, the right to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, somewhere in our ideals, we actually did believe that, but we have allowed ourselves to be, and this is, this is I find, unconscionable, but we are entertained today in this country by the destruction of life. We allow ourselves to turn on the television in the evenings and watch hours of prime time 
violence and the destruction of life. It's gotten to the point where autopsies on dead bodies is a major component. And I, I just, I think it's crazy. And I think that we are living in an era of experimentation. Never before in the history of humankind has the consciousness been bombarded with images in the way that we are now. And that was true 20 years ago. And now with the social media, it's really out of control. And we are, we are fomenting, if you will, this notion that life, it's, we're desensitizing people. And we're, you, know, you don't know whether it's a, a TV show or the local news anymore. So, so can, you, can, can you use the technology and or our desire to be entertained in this way? Can you use that in some way to, to get your message across, to, to change people's minds? We have minds? to. In fact, one of the fundamental components of our racial equity work and our transformation, r- racial healing and transformation work is what we call narrative change. And we are attempting to engage the media, this, the entertainment industry, the news media, the, the literature world, uh, and others, because that's how we embedded the belief in hierarchy. It happened to start at the same time that the printing press emerged. And so we embedded this false notion of hierarchy of human value. And we have to use communicate this communications revolution, I believe, to, to unearth it, to dislodge it. So we will have to do that. But I think, and this is my struggle personally, you can't do this work by focusing only on the negative. You have to focus on the, the positive, you know, the, the what's next. And so I think that there's a, definite connection between this reverence for life and the human body all of us reverence you know with being able to 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 muster up the political will to stop the absurdities you're listening to a health equity and access forum that we recorded at cpbn's chase family studio our guest today is dr gail christopher of the wk kellogg foundation we'll be back to talk more about health and health outcomes where we live right after this This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about health equity and access with Dr. Gail Christopher of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We recorded this conversation as part of a live event in partnership with the Connecticut Health Foundation at CPBN in front of a live audience. Tell me why place matters. We have one of the ways you embed the idea of a hierarchy of human value is to keep people separated. If I don't know the perceived other, if I've had no interaction with, in reality, with someone that's different than myself, then I can hold on to all these stereotypes and all these false beliefs about them. And we are as segregated in this country today as as South Africa was at the peak of apartheid. And so this notion, and, and, and then so we segregate, we do residential segregation, and then we, we concentrate the poverty and we disinvest. And so we perpetuate all of this largely through place, through geography. We haven't admitted that as a country, nor have we had, a, and until recently, there's hope. Uh, HUD has, I know this president gets criticized a lot for what he hasn't done in terms of racism in this country, but there have been some amazing moments. And the recent affirmatively furthering fair housing rule 
uh, is presents an opportunity for any district or any jurisdiction that receives HUD money to have to deal with issues of inequity and racism. So we won't solve the problems, we won't fix what's broken until we deal with our issues of, of residential segregation, which was a policy. We didn't just become segregated accidentally. We actually had policies that redlining and others that created what we live with today. And that's part of that historic view, you know. Uh, so I think that where you live, deter- your zip code, some people say, determines your health outcomes more so than your genetic code. So, so tell us how. What is in, in many of the people in this audience uh, and many people sitting on the radio, I, I think, know some of these stories. But, but flesh this out a little bit for us to tell us how it matters. Yeah. You know, some people believe education is the key to to um, success and viability in a, in a capitalist society and a democracy. And certainly where you live is going to determine the quality of your education outcomes, most likely. And our schools are just greatly, uh, because we fund our schools largely based on tax revenues, real estate tax revenues, uh, we end up with, with this great inequity and disparity in the quality of the schools. Now, people will argue and say, you can't throw money at the education problem, but that takes you back to that those people frame, you know, that suggests that these children can't learn or something. You know, there's all of that noise. But the fact of the matter is when you put children in schools that are robustly funded, they have quality resources, the teachers are properly paid, you end up with better education outcomes. Um, so that's one way that place matters. Access to employment is critical. And we live in a society now where the opportunities for living wage employment are not where people of color live predominantly. And so when people don't have access to a living wage opportunity for employment, then they create other ways of earning income. And those ways are often illegal, and they are often associated or or managed or even policed through violence. So you end up with concentrated poverty, concentrated violence, and then you end up with a more aggressive intervention on the part of law enforcement. And law enforcement has always been the arm of the ideology of racial hierarchy. Now, I have to really be careful because I'm not saying that I'm anti-police in any way. But I am saying that historically, the way to enforce the lie of racial hierarchy was through the law enforcement system, locally and otherwise. And so you have all these complexities that really boil down to and are, are exacerbated by our decision to be separate from one another. But this isn't part of our national strategy to overcome what some sociologists call the social dislocations. We don't have a strategy. We do have this new rule, but we really don't have a national strategy to end segregation as we know it today. Uh, And we need that. We need that strategy. What would that strategy look like? Because there are so, I can only imagine the hurdles to to jump over, political and otherwise, to, to get to something like that. I think if I really knew the exact answer to that, I might be running for president. But <laughs> I, can, I, can, I, can I just say, there's still time. <laughs> no, you can't say that. <laughs> but 
I do believe that, and I, I still, I'm an optimist. After four decades plus in this work, I believe in people. And I think if challenged creatively or incentivized to come up with, and we have some stories like Oak Park, Illinois, is a community that decided not to be segregated. And they decided to enforce the, the testing, the real estate testing. They, they have a fair housing commitment there, and they are an integrated community. And there are some other examples. Uh, Cleveland, there's some parts, or there's a suburb near Cleveland that has worked on that. You know, there, there's always this innovation at community levels that never quite works its way up to policy. But we have to believe that it's important, that it's in our best interest as a nation. And once again, for the first time, the polling data shows that, and this is among white people polled, we believe we have a race problem in this country and we want to solve it. So it's a moment where I think we could muster, if we don't elect the wrong person. Um, but, but, but is it, given what you just said, though, about small local communities making a difference, is it maybe a, a local community uh, solution? Uh, you know, here in, in Connecticut and all across New England, we have these these really small towns that fight very fiercely for their own rules. Yes. Um, and that is part of our history of racial inequity, that they live in one town and we live in another town. And sometimes the them in our town live right on the border, right? But can towns and yeah. cities yeah. be the driver of this, where you don't have to worry about the big national policy to come down from a broken Washington and maybe you maybe you can come from the ground up in a New Haven and a Hartford to do something like this we are comforted by by dichotomies and often when we get into the issues of, of racialization and racism we go to the dichotomies it isn't an either or it's a both and now, but the mantra of broken Washington and big government, and I think one of the leaders in that movement said they don't want to destroy government, they want to shrink it so they can strangle it in the bathtub, right? It's a lovely thought. Yeah, yeah well, it's, I know. <laughs> but else. that notion of government as the enemy mm -hmm. is directly linked to the fight for civil rights and racial equality. It is the mantra of George Wallace, and I think it's NPR that actually did a story on Sunday where they compared the rhetoric of a George Wallace to Donald Trump. And it, it was actually parallel in the syntax and in the, the analogies and the references. And so this notion that government is the problem and government, big government, can't solve it, it, it too has a legacy that was intended to perpetuate the divide. Does the government have the solution? But we are, the, this is a democracy. We are the government. And we forget that. You know, we allow the sound bites to frame that government is something out there when in fact government is us, right? So that's part of that. We do need, well, look at the voting rights struggle. And the Supreme Court basically destroying the critical components of the voting rights bill that requires some sort of federal oversight. And they had the, the ink wasn't dry on the decision before all these laws were being passed to discourage voting and make voting harder. 
the basic right we have as citizens to participate in our democracy. So I'm not in the camp that says Washington is broken. There are things about Washington that are not right, but we need a government and we need a strong government. But that government is informed and made up by us as the people, both the public servants, people who work in government all their lives. They're some of the most uh, courageous and dedicated and and wonderful human beings. Government gets a bad rap. If you read my bio, you know I I ran the Institute for Government Innovation at Harvard for a while. Uh, And that was the Ford Foundation's attempt to try to change this distrust in government, Mm -hmm. try to seize that, that dialogue and that narrative and there are pockets of success in that, but, but because we politicize these issues, every time we have an election, you know, the mantra of government is bad, it carries us away. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying is it's, it's not that I think that government, especially Washington government, federal government, doesn't have a place. Right. I wonder, though, if at the city and state level there are opportunities, and we'll look at this as, as an opportunity, Um, opportunities to come together in a way that Washington doesn't have. I mean, something about local government that's great is it's a lot easier for a Democrat to really like the Republican who lives next door than than in Washington because you both have to have a nice yard, you know, at the end of the day. You both have to have clean streets. So is there something about local government that can fix some of the problems we're talking about and then maybe have them bubble up? Sort of Washington that needs that kind of innovation. Well, actually, that's how it has happened over the decades. Many of the policy ideas that find their way to Washington, good and bad, welfare reform and others, even health care reform for that matter, had had its origin at state and local levels. So I completely concur in the sense that much of what needs to be done has to be done at the state and local level. I do believe that the government at the at the national level has to play oversight roles, has to play roles that incentivize and support. Perhaps most importantly, there has to be a national system of accountability. We as a country have to hold ourselves nationally and regionally accountable for specific measures of progress along this continuum of overcoming our legacy of a belief in a hierarchy of human value. So one of the first goals of the effort is to get the call for and put in place a set of expectations that we will look at over the next 25 years to show us that we are in fact really making progress. We don't want it to be like Brown versus the Board of Education, where the schools 50 years later are more segregated than they were then. And that's the truth today. We as a country, collectively, have to have an expectation of accountability for progress. It's important to us domestically. It's also important to our credibility globally and internationally. How can we say we are the the strongest nation in the world and things like Ferguson are being shown on international television? You know, uh, So we, we've got work to do. And I, I, I believe, it, again, it's not an either or. It's a both and. But there's a role for the national leadership. And and we are the United States of America. You know, we are a country that has a union. And we're not questioning like that like Europe is right now. We're, we're still believing we are a nation. And so, therefore, there has to be a clear understanding and expectation for the federal government. So. 
in a moment, I'm going to get to some questions. And if you'd like to raise your hand, uh, Danae can get to you so that we can uh, get some of your questions here for um, for the doctor. I, I, I'd like to, you used a, a term healthcare reform in, in that. I, I guess I'm wondering what you think that means. I mean, <laughs> g- given given the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the, the fights against it, sort of where we are right now, and in perhaps where we could be if we'd made yeah. different choices yeah. ab- about uh, our healthcare system. What, what does it look like, you know, 2016 healthcare reform to you? Well, I, first of all, I'm very proud of the work of so many advocates over 20, 25, 30, even 40 years to get us what we did get. And I'm very proud of our president having drawn the line in the sand and pushed through something in terms of his personal motivation. Is it perfect? No. We have made the mistake, and I know I'm in a state where this could get me run out of of the state, but we've, we've made the mistake of equating health insurance to health assurance. And they are not synonymous. And the Affordable Care Act, to a large measure, is about health insurance. There, but the, the, the sort of best-kept secrets of the ACA really have to do with health assurance in terms of a prevention strategy and an, in, and a, and a, and an intergovernmental uh, cabinet-level council that brings to bear the input of all the different f- government agencies into what we need to do to prevent illness. You know, our country does agree that Albert, Albert Einstein was our greatest genius of the 20th century. And he actually says many things that are quite wise, but one of them was that it's clever to fix a problem. And we in philanthropy, we fix problems. But he says it's wise to avoid the problems altogether. And the wisdom that we need to bring to bear to improving health in this country, I mean, access to health care is a social determinant. Some people like to say there's the social determinants of health and then there's health care. I like to say, again, that's a false dichotomy. There is, everything is a social or contextual determinant of health and access to quality care when you need it is one of those things. But truthfully, and the data is clear now, access to health care really makes up about 20% of the factors that determine health. So why would we put 90% of our resources into 20% of the challenge? Because we want to be built on an insurance-based system as opposed to a health system. We don't have a health system. And some people would suggest that we don't have a health care system either in the sense that we have a lot of pockets of what goes on, but we don't have unified accountability for health care. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in health care. I just left New York where one of my children had major surgery. So I, I got a chance to see the best, I believe, of some of what health care can do, and I'm very appreciative of that. But, again, that's, that's like a week out of a lifetime. You know, so, so we know that so much of what we are spending our dollars on today, it's chronic disease chronic disease that's directly related to the environment. Now, we could do a whole show on the 
the mechanisms, if you will, the pathways by which the environment creates illness. Give us some of those. But, but I have, over the last decades, come to believe that this, the most unifying sort of concept for that is stress. And what uh, is biologically described as allostatic load. And I like to say that the child who can't read by the third grade has been set up for an allostatic load differential that will make that child more vulnerable to disease. Anyone who lives in a violent community and experiences the trauma of people dying around them, oh my God, those families in Syria, the refugees, their allostatic load, the cumulative weight of having to adapt to that which should not, we, we should not be exposed to, uh, triggering the physiological stress response, the increased heart rate, you know, the cortisol production, the decrease in digestion and absorption of nutrients, the burden on the kidneys. These are actual bodily reactions to being exposed to adversity and trauma. And they have a cumulative effect of wearing us down, particularly our immune system, and so we are more vulnerable to disease as a consequence of being immersed within contexts that are too stressful. Now, the, the counterweight to that, of course, is what do we need that, that brings what we call our, our relaxation response. Benson built on the work of folks in the field of transcendental meditation and came up with his term, built his career, I think, on the relaxation response. But we know that the human person needs to be connected. And in a way, this will bring us back mm -hmm. to the basic thesis of why transformation and racial healing is so important. As human beings, we are designed to be connected to other human beings. And when we are connected through relationships that are positive, we bring about a counterweight to the stress, to the allostatic load. Relationship and bonding and support and nurturing are critical to our health and well-being. So there's so many reasons why we deserve better than to continue to be a nation divided. Racism. Racism, <laughs> yes. You're listening to a Health Equity and Access Forum. We recorded at CPBN's Chase Family Studio. Our guest today is Dr. Gail Christopher of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We'll be back with more Where We Live right after this. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it's the 10-year anniversary of our program. It's also the 10-year anniversary of Ned Lamont's historic bid for the Senate, which saw him beat Senator Joe Lieberman in the Democratic primary before he then lost to him in the general election. Coming up, we'll talk to Ned about that race and the current state of our country. Today, we're talking with Dr. Gail Christopher. She's been a crusader for better health outcomes in America, championing an important idea that place matters, finding that the way people live in some neighborhoods puts them at much higher risk for disease. Got a couple more minutes for questions. Hi there. What's your name? Hi, my name's Erin Moggs. I'm the uh, executive director of Open Communities Alliance, which is a Kellogg grantee. Thank you. Um, we are working with an urban, suburban, interracial coalition to create access to opportunity, and we very much support investing in areas that are struggling in terms of health and other things, but also creating access to affordable housing in areas that are thriving. 
We are in a severe budget shortfall in Connecticut right now, and I was wondering if you could just address a little bit, and it's sort of back to cost, but the cost savings that can come along with access to areas of opportunity in terms of health. Uh, and I'll start by saying, you know, way, way back, I think it might have been 30 years ago when I was doing work in the foster care system, uh, and the single most most common reason for children to be put into foster care was the lack of access to affordable housing. And if you think about the cascade of, of risk factors that surface when children go into the foster care system, you can begin to connect the dots. I mean, the foster care system is a feeder system for the prison system, right, and for school failure. Um, the idea that, that how, I mean, what is more important to balancing one's allostatic load than having a safe place to live and to be? And that we have such a dwindling stock of affordable housing in this country and Connecticut is just one illustration, but this is true everywhere in this country. And it's been made much worse following the real estate crisis, right? People, again, profit motive, right? But so the issue of access to, to affordable housing, I think I started earlier this evening today talking about how residential segregation was the key and undoing residential segregation was the key to really overcoming the racial divide and the consequences of racism. And affordable housing is the key to that. You know, we don't have an affordable housing policy in this country, and those things that we have that sort of, you know, are they're tiptoe around the edges of it. You know, housing mobility programs and and um, Section Eight housing. We continue to to sort of um, diminish those in terms of funding and support. So the issue of affordable housing, I mean, I would say to anyone who's in the philanthropic world who's trying to figure out how to do social determinants of health locally, I think the first thing we need to look at is access to affordable housing. And the second thing would be access to, to employment that, plays a living, that pays a living wage. And we know that getting to that means transportation innovation. And if you dealt with housing and living wage and transportation, you'd be really, really making a, a major, major input on the social determinants of health and well-being. Um, and, and, but we don't think of it that way. We think you've got to get these kids to the doctor, which you do. They should have a, a medical home. But they're going to need less medical care if they have the conditions that promote health and well-being. And I didn't even touch on food. That, that's an, another can, conversation. Can you, because we just have a, a moment left. Can you quickly touch on food because this is it's something that you've studied closely and it's something that's a very big problem in some of our urban areas, certainly here in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, I can only say that um, I talked about the importance of relationship and connection for the human experience. And one of the ways we manifest that connection is through the gift of, of food and access to food that is grown in the ground and on trees and, and uh, you know, vegetables and fruits and, and those animals that sacrifice their lives for us. We, as human beings, need to have fresh, locally grown, living sort of food. You know what I'm saying? And, and the longer it's set on a shelf somewhere in a can or a box, it's not really 
the best, I believe, source of nourishment for us. And so, you know, this this state has an obesity, a childhood obesity issue. And it's kind of ironic because the early ch- childhood movement has gotten more than 70%, I believe, or around 70% of your children into early childhood education. And yet those children are suffering from childhood obesity more. And so as I was reading that data, I was asking myself, so what are these kids eating You know, in these early childhood centers? Uh, and I would leave you with this one thought. If you haven't read it or seen it, I really suggest that you see the film called That Sugar Film. And um, I was on a panel a year or so ago, and they came back to that question where they said, what's the one thing that you could do to reverse the obesity? I think it was a partnership for Healthier America. And truthfully, the one thing we could do to dramatically change the obesity epidemic in this country, it's about sugar. Sugar is hidden in everything. And if we get that sugar out of our systems and out of our diets, we see a change within a matter of weeks and days and months. And so I wonder if what is the actual sugar intake of these kids that are eating most of their meals in institutional settings? And I think one could track that, one could measure that, and one could change that, and you'd probably see a reduction in the childhood obesity. But we have to eat fruits and vegetables and healthy foods. That's what's required to have healthy, to have longevity and health. And we have to create systems that make that opportunity accessible to everybody. And it's really, really, really fundamental to health. Thank you for your ideas and your clarity and for spending some time with us. Uh, Dr. Gail Christopher, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, John. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown with Tucker Ives. The technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Thanks to the Connecticut Health Foundation, Nancy Bauer and Jane Marino for their help today. You can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.